so this morning we're going to, after eight weeks, is the eighth week of looking at the book of Philippians. And so we're finishing it up today with these verses that uh, Hunter just read, uh, Philippians 4, uh, 10 through 23. And uh, it's been so good for me. I, you know, the difficult part about doing it by, by reading and unpacking, and it's, it's what we're supposed to do, but the tough part is you're not reading the letter, the entire letter in one sitting. Uh, maybe we ought to do that at some point, but uh, you're getting, it's broken up over eight weeks. And really, you know, Christmas, we had our Advent series, so it's kind of broken up by some months. And so uh, overarching today, we're going to talk about this overarching thing that Paul is pointing out here. He's kind of coming to a conclusion. He's, he's going to point out something that this is a letter meant to encourage, that is to give courage. But the courage is not, the courage that Paul is trying to communicate is in the Lord. The joy that Paul is trying to communicate is in the Lord. This is not a, hey, listen, everything's going to be okay. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison, and he's writing it to a church that is being persecuted. They're living in a colony that loves Rome, that, you know, the, the, the nation that was oppressing them. And so this is not a, hey, this is perfect. This is heaven on earth. This is no more tears, no more suffering. He's not writing from that position, and he's not writing to a people who are in that position. He is saying all of these things, encouragement and joy in the Lord to you all. And I think uh, what we're going to see today is those aren't empty platitudes. They're not sentiments. There's a reality to it. And of any of the lessons, um, any of the truths that Paul is unpacking in this short letter, again, it's four chapters, but they're short chapters. These aren't like Luke chapters. These are little bitty chapters, little nuggets. Anything that, uh, of, of all the things that Paul is going to talk about in these chapters, this passage, this section, this uh, pericope or, or pericope, this section is one that I am so jealous over. Not just for myself, but for our church body, for our family. I pray that, that again, as, as Hunter prayed, that the Spirit by His work would let these truths come home. That we would be uh, captured by these things. We would comprehend these truths. I just think, what if we, what if I, as I look in the mirror, what if I were able to echo what Paul is saying here in my own heart and life, this idea of joy and contentment in the Lord and in Him alone. I just think, man, I, I want that. I hunger and thirst for that. And so uh, let's take our time to look at this today. In, in, uh, when I was in high school a few decades ago, uh, I, uh, my senior year, I, I didn't want to play. I, I, you know, I, I love basketball. I think I've made that apparent, uh, abundantly clear here. Uh, so I love the sport of basketball, and uh, I'd put a lot of weight in that, and I was going for it. And uh, I didn't, but I, I had these other two seasons. I didn't really want to play football. I couldn't play football because you look at my frame. Uh, but like, I, I liked running track. And I, I, my senior year, I was like, why don't I try tennis? Because somebody told me that tennis is a good sport to pick up, like, because when you get older, your knees don't do things that you want them to do anymore and all that stuff. So I was like, oh, I'm going to try tennis. So I, I played tennis my senior year, had never picked up a racket, and tried tennis my last, my senior year, and played. And because I'm uh, weirdly taller uh, than my teammates were, they, I ended up getting a spot on the team and even playing the, the four spot, like, and there was five or, and then doubles. So anyway, I ended up getting a place on the team where I could play the, in the matches. And there were other people who didn't, and other people who, like, their whole, like, they wanted to be tennis players. But they didn't, like, I took their spot because of my height, really. And 
I remember talking to this one, you know, like he was so bummed out. Like I took his spot and I just, I'm just doing this for fun so that someday when I get older, I can play tennis, which I don't do. Uh, but he was really bummed out. And I remember thinking, what, it's just tennis. Like what's, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like why are you putting so much weight in? It's tennis. But then as I thought, like this is, this is his basketball. This is his thing that he finds the most joy in. Like this is the thing that he's going after. So, okay, I, I get that. And here's the truth uh, of it. Everybody in here has a tennis or a basketball in their life. Like, we all have something that we're going after. It may be something that culture has told you is important. Like, this is a vital thing. This is where you're going to find your contentment and your satisfaction and your joy. So go after that. Maybe culture has told us that. Maybe social media has told you. Or maybe it's just, maybe your, your parents have told you this is the thing. And so we're all going after something. And as we're going after that, we make these conditional clauses in our life. We make these conditional clauses that say, if this, then that, right? And we know that. And even if you're not saying that literally, there is that uh, implicitly. Like we would say, if I get to this point in my life, right? So for the tennis player, if I get to be one seed or the basketball, if I get to start and I score this, like there's this, if this, if I get this house, this spouse, this job, this uh, neighborhood, this whatever, insert, fill in the blank. We all have it. Every single one of us have something that we put in the if blank. Then, we say then, we will be satisfied. We will find contentment. We'll finally be able to relax. We'll finally be able to rest. We'll actually be able to enjoy life if this happens. I mean, is that not there somewhere for us all? And some of them we know are temporary. Okay, I'm in college, so if this, if I get to be, I don't even know what those honors are called because I didn't sniff them out. Like, I don't know. If dean's list, is that a thing? I think that's important. I think people want to do that. Like, so if I get this, then that, or if I get this residency, or if I get this whatever. So anyway, all of us have that thing. I think that's easy to see or easy to know on a personal level. But what we understand is that the goalposts of our satisfaction, if you've not noticed it yet, live long enough and you will, the goalposts of our satisfaction will continually move in every stage of our lives. They're always going to move. They never stay the same place. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. The writer continually reveals that all the pursuits to find satisfaction in career, money, pleasure, and power are all vain. Empty. He says, and in the original language, it means more of, uh, he says over and over, he says, vapor, vapor, everything is vapor. All of these pursuits, all of these things that you want to put in the if-then blank, if I get this, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that's vapor. It's all vapor. They will all leave you empty. Putting your hope of contentment in any of these pursuits will leave you unsatisfied. In our final verses in the book of Philippians, Paul tells the church that his joy and contentment are not connected to his circumstances, but rather they are in the Lord. And God has given him all that he needs to find satisfaction regardless of his situation. Like, aren't you jealous for that? In other words, Paul is not living a life of constantly making conditional statements of his joy. He's no longer saying, if this happens, then I'll be satisfied. He is saying satisfied in the already philippians 4 chapter or chapter 4 verses 10 through 23 
Let me read. I just want to read the first four verse to kind of give us a, a running start at it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we jump into this passage, Father God, I pray that you would reveal and um, that your spirit would work in our hearts. For, for some hearts, it's a reminder. For some hearts, it's for the first time. Wherever we may be on that continuum, Father God, I pray that we would, by your power, see and hear these things. That our lives would be changed by these things. May, Father, I pray that we are, we are expectant of the work of the Lord. That we would not just be sitting here today and say, oh, it's another Sunday, it's another sermon, and yeah, okay. Father, I pray that we would, we would believe that by your Spirit's work, not by my work, but by your Spirit's work, by the power of your resurrection, that creates new life, that we would believe that by the teaching, the order, we could walk out of here as new people. Father, I pray that we would believe that, that we would be expectant of that, that we would not grieve the Spirit, that we would not quench the Spirit, that we would trust Him who has started the work in us. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us access to all of these things, who gives us confidence to even pray these things. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Okay, today we're going to look at three things. What a surprise. Paul's joy, Paul's contentment, and God's provision. Paul's joy, Paul's contentment, and God's provision. All right, let's look at Paul's joy. What we're going to see here in this first section is that their giving reveals their delight. Their giving reveals their delight. Again, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul begins this final section by once again talking about his joy. And again, the book of Philippians, the word joy is throughout. This time it is in reference to their financial gift to him for his ministry. Paul has two reasons to be joyful about their gift that we see from the entire book of the book of Philippians. And spoiler about Paul's joy, their gift was not, his joy about their gift was not because he was in need or because it would give him financial margin for comfortable living. Paul's joy about their gift to him is not about his need or the margin it would give him. First, when we think, or when we remember back to the beginning of the letter of the book of Philippians, or the letter of Philippians, we know that Paul's joy over their gift is because it reveals that they are in gospel partnership with him. Paul's joy is not in the specific gift, but in his relationship with the givers. They want to share in the work he has given his life to. It's almost as if Paul, uh, again, using modern terms of how we would receive a gift, it's almost as if Paul gets a letter, and you know the kind of letter, the, the, the type of letter with the clear window that you look at and you're like, that's a check. I know, I know what that one is. That's not a bill. That, that smells like a check. So it's almost as if, and what we need to see here is that Paul's joy is in the check before he opens the check. He doesn't know what the number, he doesn't, it's not about the number on the check. His joy is in the check. Why? Because he, he's encouraged, he's joyful over what we saw in, in Philippians 1. He's joyful over their partnership in the work of the gospel. So what he sees in the check, what it represents is this church of Philippi is going after the spread of the gospel throughout the, to the ends of the earth. 
He's saying they're with me. They're walking with me. There's this fellowship, this koinonia, as we hear in Philippians 1, this koinonia of work, of, of the ministry, of the gospel to those people who are not even in Philippi. And he is, it, it has caused him joy. And in Philippians 1, he says, I am thankful. I pray for you. I give my prayers with thanksgiving because of, not the number on the check, but my prayers of thanksgiving are because of your partnership in the gospel. So he is thankful and joyful for their partnership in the gospel. But then ultimately, what we find out here, and is clarified in verse 17, that it is even more than that. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 4 says this, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So we see here in verse 17, secondly and ultimately, Paul's rejoicing for their gift is rooted in what it reveals about their joy. Paul's joy in the gift is, 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 is based in what it is revealing about the joy of the giver, of those who are giving. Their generosity to the Lord's work through Paul reveals a God-powered work happening in their hearts. It is a fruit that shows who their God is. Throughout the book of Philippians and his letters, he doesn't want his work of the gospel to be in vain. He loves the church, and his joy is tied to its spiritual growth. So then, the greatest cause of joy for Paul is that the church would worship the one true God and not their finances. So he says, my joy is not in the benefits of your gift, but in what it reveals about what or whom you worship. He's thankful because what he's seeing in the gift is that even though they're being persecuted and they're they're not a bunch of comfortable people that even in that they're being generous and so he says they're worshiping God the one who started the work is completing the work in them and I know so again the cynic and the pragmatist will say this to Paul about him not needing their gift we'll roll our eyes and we'll say yeah Paul But without their gift, you wouldn't be able to do ministry. So open the check and see how many zeros are on it. And let your joy come from the zeros and not this sentiment of fruit. Because you cannot live as a missionary if they don't give you money. And I think Paul, in this passage, is unequivocally, absolutely denying that pragmatic view of his ministry. He is not their employee. But he is also not saying he doesn't need or want them to give. He loves them and he is thankful for their fellowship and joyous about what their partnership reveals about their hearts. It means that his work is not in vain. These things that Paul is saying is not only true when it comes to our relationship of supporting pastors and missionaries and the church, it is true when it comes to our relationship with God himself. So if we jump back to, I know I mentioned Luke having long chapters. We won't read the whole chapter in Luke. But if you look back at Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21, I'm just going to read the first four verses. Luke 21, 1 through 4. Hear the echo, uh, hear Paul's echo in what Jesus is saying here. Luke 21, 1 through 4 says this. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. 
For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And this is known as as the widow's offering or the widow's might. And so this is what we have. We have this story of Jesus uh, standing in the temple, standing on the other side and watching the offering boxes. And uh, I mean, there's, there's a word that maybe they're announcing because they would announce some gifts, but he's standing there and he's watching the offerings come in, watching people. And he's seeing uh, the wealthy put in, because again, they're not writing a check. So they would see the amount, they would see this, these big offerings going in, right? The more they would put in, the bigger the offering. So they're watching that, very visible and so Jesus is watching that, and his disciples are standing there, he's watching that, and he sees a widow give these, uh, these, these two copper coins, or these, this penny, this small amount, put it in, and he says something that is totally upside down to the pragmatist. He says, that woman gave more than anyone. And obviously, us, we say, that, that doesn't make sense. How is that even possible? So what do we see here? Are we also going to roll our eyes at Jesus and say, yeah, but without the big offerings of the rich, the temple would be in shambles. And then everything would fall apart. And where does that line of reasoning end? It ends with a sliding scale of God's thankfulness for those who give more. It ends with God being an employee of the biggest givers. So then, the widow's offering was of great value, not because God needed a penny, but because the widow revealed that her satisfaction, her contentment, her hope and life were in God. And this is what Paul's ultimate joy in the Philippian gift was as well. Asking how little we can give and still make God happy reveals that God is our insurance policy or obligation and not our joy. Finances, their life and confidence is in Christ. This is the goal of Paul's ministry. That God would be their God. So in the gift from the Philippian church, he has great joy because what he sees is his, his ministry, his life calling. Everything that he's being shipwrecked for, snake bit for, persecuted for, stoned for, all of those things are not vain. He's seeing the fruit. This is what he was hoping for. That hearts would turn away from man-made, from created things as their contentment. That hearts would turn from that, would be renewed, regenerated through the work of the Spirit, the one who started these works, and that they would say, please, what do I need this for? Like, I'm content. So his joy is great. And so for us, is this saying that God doesn't need my money? Yes. That is what Paul said about the Philippian gift as well. And it's what Jesus is saying in Luke 21. God does not need your money. Maybe at this point we hear a whisper that says, then what am I doing? What am I doing these things for? Well, because he is God and he is your God. He's not a needy God who created you because of something he lacked. He did not choose you because you would play or you would pay for his temple. He did not love you because he knew you could do something for him. Giving is an act of worship, of showing worth. It's not an act of obligation. When we give of our finances, we are not tipping God. We are not paying our dues. We are saying when we give, it's a fruit. We are saying, my contentment and satisfaction are not found in the circumstances of my time and finances. 
We are cheerful givers to our God. We are the widow whose giving reveals that money is not our hope for satisfaction, contentment, refuge, or joy. It's a proclamation of worth in God. So that's Paul's joy. Secondly, Paul's contentment. His delight is not in himself. Look at verse 11 through 13 here. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word Paul uses for content there in verse 11, at the end of verse 11, is a word that is used by the Stoics. The Stoics were a group of philosophers who sought to insulate themselves from wild emotional swings based on their circumstances. And so they sought a type of inner self-sufficiency. They sought a life untethered to material things, power, or position. They believed that knowledge and logic could protect them from destructive feelings. They placed a high value on wisdom and that through wisdom you could become content. And so they taught that you could find this self-sufficient contentment regardless of external circumstances. And again, Paul uses that word that the Stoics used, content, this self-sufficient, this this idea of contentment within yourself. And I know, like for all of us, we're like, oh, that sounds great. Hey, I'm with them. I'm with Paul. I'm with the Stoics. And Paul uses this word for contentment to say that he is not affected by whether or not he has much or little. He has found a way to be content in every circumstance, that he can be brought low, that he can be in prison and not have enough food, clothing, or freedom, yet he can find contentment. And he writes that he has learned the secret of facing plenty and being in need. And I'm sure at this point, if a Stoic philosopher were reading this letter to the church of Philippi, they would cheer him on. They would say, exactly. Achieving contentment detached from your circumstances is knowledge and wisdom that we can ascend to. We can become self-sufficient. But this is not what Paul is saying. He is Okay. Before we look at verse 13, this wonderful, misinterpreted verse 13, we have to know and remember what what we just said. The Stoics, who predated Paul, would say that contentment is a knowledge, is a wisdom that can give you self-sufficiency, that you can be untethered and detached, that no matter how much you have or how little you have, you could find contentment in wisdom. You could be above it. You could transcend it. So Paul, knowing that, knowing of Stoicism, knowing that, he writes, I found this contentment, But we cannot leave it there because then Paul is going to make... Verse 13 is a disclaimer to what Stoicism says. He makes sure that his words are not confused for Stoic philosophy, the philosophy of self-delight, by writing this infamously misinterpreted passage, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If we pull verse 13 out of its context and put it on a bumper sticker or on a meme, you would hear or be led to believe that whatever mountain you're trying to climb or goal you're aiming at will be made possible through the power of Yahweh in your life. 
You want to be first seed on the tennis team? You can do all things through God who strengthens you. And you're like, I'm on board. As if God were a steroid to give you a boost to conquer the day. But it misses the whole context of what Paul has been trying to say in Philippians, chapter four, in Philippians, in the Bible. Let's just expand it. In the passage's context, when Paul is saying all things, he's saying God empowers him to walk faithfully in abundance and in poverty. He is not saying that he will always win the day. Paul does not always win the day. I mean, you can look in Corinthians. He has this list where he talks about how all the days he did not win. He's not saying you're always going to win the day. He's saying that when he fails or is in a pit, he has been given the strength by God to be content. By God's power, Paul learned contentment when he had food and when he didn't have food. In this famous verse, he's saying to the Stoic, God is the person that allows him to be fully satisfied in abundance and poverty. This verse is meant to be the disclaimer, again, a point of clarification so that the church understands how, how he was content in abundance and in need. His strength and power to be satisfied in abundance and poverty is through Christ. He is not proclaiming contentment through self-sufficiency. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Jesus is what the philosopher seeks in Stoicism. He is the fragrance they smelled and sought in their studies and self-fulfillment. What the Stoics thought they could achieve in themselves was achieved by Christ for us. Are we not in danger of seeking what the Stoics teach when we talk about our contentment? We want to be able to look at our circumstances and say, I don't care if I have little, I am satisfied. And so may we hear what Paul is writing and not try to muster up self-sufficient contentment, but rather seek the shalom, the peace, the completion we find in Christ. Again, he is, reve- he is the revealed wisdom of God for our satisfaction. Paul will end God's provision. Verse 9, that God will meet us in our needs. So thirdly and finally, God's provision. Verse 19, again, another often misused verse. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, we get this next verse that can often be misunderstood if we remove it from the surrounding verses. Remember, Paul has already said that he has lived seasons in which he has been brought low. Times in which hunger was real. Times in which he suffered and was left for dead outside the city gates. So then, to see this verse, verse 19, as a promise for abundant financial prosperity, it's not biblical. I mean, you can rip it out of, out of the context, and you can eisegete it, and you can make it say that. I mean, I could, where does that end? I could eisegete the word rejoice. I could just say, the Bible tells me to rejoice. And then I'll just fill in what it, around everything it means. Like, at what point are we going to say you cannot just remove things from and make it whatever you want it to mean? So the fact, this verse of God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glories has a rich context that actually, when we think about it, when we understand it, when we consider it, is far better than any financial prosperity we want to eisegete into this passage. The Bible tells us that contentment is not the result of living with less. It is the result of seeing that what we have in Christ is more. Uh, A few months back in November, 
my family, uh, we, we do this thing at the end of November. Usually on a Thursday, we celebrate something called Thanksgiving. And uh, if you've ever heard of it, it's pretty, pretty great. might just be a Canadian thing. Um, just kidding. They do it in October. Uh, so anyway, so Thanksgiving, like if, if you're like me, and I hope you're not, but if you're like me, uh, what happens on a normal Thanksgiving day is you have Thanksgiving lunch. And we, I know some people do dinner. I don't, I don't like that because I like, I'm going to use another word that I like to use a lot. I like the epilogue of Thanksgiving dinner, of Thanksgiving lunch. That is, I like what comes after Thanksgiving lunch. And what is that? A nap. They're the most beautiful thing in the, in, on the calendar year. I am tearing up right now thinking about the Thanksgiving nap. Like the nap that you take after having eaten, having feasted on the most beautiful fried turkey and gravy and Diet Coke. Because, you know, you're watching your calories. Uh, the, the, the nap that you take after Thanksgiving lunch is just, I mean, it is a gift. Here's what you don't, here's, here's why I do love it and why I'm talking about it right now, not just randomly. Like after Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving meal, I'm not walking around thinking, I'm not walking into the, because, you know, because we have a bunch of kids in our house. Uh, like I'm not going to the pantry and opening the pantry. I'm not going to, I'm not going to the refrigerator and opening the refrigerator, just staring at it. Like what do I need next? I'm not going to the pantry saying, what do I need next? What could I snack on? I'm going one place, it's to the couch. The kids know, do not sit there. That is a temporary place of your sitting because I'm, I'm about to be there. So there's this season where I'm no longer hungry. I am satisfied. There's an exhale. There's a loosening of the belt. Like there's this, let me lay down and just relax and enjoy deep rest in contentment. We, we, on some level, can you relate to that? Here's what Paul is saying in verse 19. We can rest knowing that we have been given and will continue to be given everything we need for deep satisfaction. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings and on Wednesdays and for our Sunday school classes and our groups that by His grace, His Spirit will work through His Word being taught, sung, read, and prayed and that our hearts would feast on what God has revealed and that we would be satisfied and that then we would leave this place not like a hungry teenager at a convenience store, but rather we would leave in the same posture we have when we take the nap on the couch after a Thanksgiving meal. That we would then face our week no longer anxiously opening the pantries of our contentment saying, what else do I need? What else can I have? But rather we would go to the couch and say, I am satisfied. We go to work satisfied. We parent our children satisfied. We love our spouse satisfied. We go to school satisfied. We play sports satisfied. Knowing that those th we don't need those things. We're already full. While we're looking uh, at verses that are often misinterpreted, let's, let's throw one more on there. So y'all know the verse that says, God will give you the desires of your heart. God will give you the desires of your heart. I know that's another one. I'm like, man, I, I can get on board with that. 
This is another routinely misused passage and falls in the same vein of what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 4. God giving us the desires of our heart, though, flows from an imperative. Psalm 37.4, where we get this passage from. Psalm 37.4. So, you know how we break verses down A and B. So, let me just remind you of what B says. Psalm 37.4B, the second half of 37, says this. He will give you the desires of your heart. And I know what happens. We say, publish it. There we go. I know what I'm praying for. He will give us the desires of our heart. But you have to remember part A. Psalm 37a says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So then, this is saying, take delight, or in the original, take pleasure in, take satisfaction in, or take contentment in God. And he will give you that. It is not God It is not that God will give you the job, the spouse, the finances, and the house your heart desires. That's not what the verse says. Make him your portion, your satisfaction, your contentment, your hope, your joy. Again, 37.4a is an imperative. Take delight in the Lord. And he will give you those desires. If your satisfaction is in the Lord, then he will, then you, I'm sorry, then you will be satisfied. If your hunger is for the Lord, you will be full. If your contentment is in the Lord, then you will be content. Paul's repeated uh, phrase, rejoice in the Lord, in the book of Philippians, he says rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. When he repeats that, it's actually an echo of Psalm 37, 4, when he says delight yourself in the Lord. It is the phrase meant to be applied to our hearts. And I think sometimes we can live a life that communicates my future salvation and hope are in the Lord, yes, but my current happiness and joy are firmly in the, in the world. And if that is the case, no matter, here is a promise. We're talking about promises. If your future hope is in the Lord, but your current joy is in the world. Here's what the Bible says. No matter how much you have, you'll be hungry, you'll be discontent and in want. The goalpost will continually move. And you can forget about being generous. You will never be cheerfully generous if you're not content. When Jesus walked on earth, he told his followers that he was all that they need. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't need to eat or drink ever on earth. But it does mean that his life was not tied to those things. In the book of John, Jesus reveals all the ways he is all we need. Jesus says, yeah, I need you to know something about your contentment, your satisfaction. He says it in seven different ways. They're called the I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. That is, listen, your nourishment is in me. He says, I am the light of the world. That is, I will allow you to see in your blindness. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. That is, you will enter the kingdom through me. You are how you become, or I am how you become. Fourthly, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He tells his people that he is their new life. He says that I am the good shepherd. 
That is, he is our guide, our comfort, our protector. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, he is the truth that destroys the lies of the world. And he says, I am the true vine. That is, it is through Jesus, not created things, that we are sustained. Sometimes we can read these I am statements of Christ being about our satisfaction and we can categorize them as sentiments. As an abstract thought and we never actually taste them. They are decorations with no little function or no function instead of sturdy, nourishing foundations to reorient our entire lives meant to be enjoyed and savored. The seven I am statements of Jesus Christ are meant to be tasted and, and enjoyed in the already. Our greatest need is satisfied in the perfect life of Jesus, the substitute death of him for us on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. Do we believe he is the content of our contentment? The complete content. I mean, I think this is something that's important. I, have to, I ask myself every time I open this passage this week to study it. Do I actually believe that Jesus Christ is all I need for contentment? Do I believe that? Yes or no? Easy as that. Do you believe that's all you need? In the already. And you could really be content if you just had Christ. When we feel unsatisfied, do we seek fulfillment in Him or in created things? If we put our delight in money, money will leave us in want. If we put our delight in our careers, our careers will leave us in want. If we put our delight in any created thing, we will be continually in want. Making conditional if this, then I will be at peace statements for the rest of our lives. Paul is calling the church to hear the secret, the promise of God. If we put our delight in the Lord, we will be delighted. The verse we look at today does not a promise or does not promise the verses we look at today do not promise abundant finances or the power to climb earthly ladders of success. The verses we look at today are actually giving us a greater promise, a promise of completion, a promise of as, as Parker prayed of shalom, a promise of rest from our anxious searching. Close the pantry doors. Full bellies that exhale in satisfaction in the already. And Jesus Christ is the amen to that promise. He is the fulfillment of that promise for our needs. And I know, I, I know, I know. You're, you're, just like the, the disciples would have looked at the widow's might and said, Yeah, right, that that's more. It's upside down. But what the Bible calls us to do is why don't you taste it? Why don't you taste and see it? Why don't you really believe it and give your life to it? In closing, I'm going to give two thoughts here. Maybe an observation and then maybe an application. First, both applications. Put your delight in Christ. Put your delight in Christ. Like it said in Psalm 37, this is an imperative. We are called to do this. Take delight in Him. Put your delight in Christ. Paul said that this contentment was something that he learned. This doesn't mean that it is a secret, stoic knowledge, but rather Paul is saying that it is something that is learned through participating in the work of God in Him. Putting our delight in the Lord goes against our sinful nature that wants to find delight in what we can achieve 
and not in what Christ achieved. So we must continually learn uh, through fear and trembling and through the ordinary means of grace, through the preaching and the praying and the singing and the devotions, all of that, we are learning this thing, that He is better, that He is the greater joy. Through striving and straining together, that we won't be led away by the thorny deceitfulness of riches. May we put our delight in Him, and He will give us the delight of our hearts. It is to live a life that rejoices in the Lord, regardless of what created things we have or don't have. And don't we all want that? Put our delight in Him. And then secondly, worship Him. Show His worth. He is your delight. We are cheerful and generous givers, not out of some law of obligation, but because He is our God of great provision. And our giving is our worship, our surrender, our proclamation that Jesus the Christ is our contentment. And with all of this, we remember that by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit, we learn these things, not so that the world would see us as beautiful, but rather that the world would see that He is beautiful and satisfying. So Paul ends with this in verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Nobody looks at, the, at, at somebody taking a nap with a full belly who is content. Nobody looks at him and says, oh, what a great person he is. They're going to ask what? What did you eat? What are you enjoying? That, like, that you would exhale like that. What is it? And that is our lives. That people would see us and say, what have you tasted? What have you put your delight in? That you will be so content. I see the life you're walking whether you have little or little, like you are just content. Where is that coming from? What have you been feasting on? You say, it's God, it's Christ. He's my contentment, he's my delight, and his promises are true, and they're fulfilled in Christ. I am satisfied. All of these things, yeah, I know I need them, but man, they're not my joy. And then in verse 23, don't forget, it's how Paul ends the letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. It is through the grace that these things happen. It is all for his glory through the giving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, by one degree to the next, may we put our ultimate delight in him and he will indeed give us the delight of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we, as Paul said earlier in the book of Philippians, he's not arrived at these things. He is still, in actuality, learning the secret when he writes these things. And again, not that the secret is some hidden thing that he has to unveil, but something that his heart is blind to. It is something that he has to see through the work of your Spirit. Father, I pray that we would, again, by one degree, become more delighted in your Son, Jesus Christ, that he would be the content of our contentment that we would be fully satisfied when we go to work. We're not looking at work to give us our satisfaction. We would be fully satisfied when we parent, that we're not looking for our kids to give us something that we are needy for, that we're, when we spouse, that we're not looking for our spouse to give us something that we lack. Father, just as you lacked nothing in the Trinity, yet you still created, Father, I pray that we would have that posture. May we enjoy the fellowship. May we be content. May we not be anxious to find something that's just out of our reach because you've already given it to us. May we claim these promises. 
Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is our portion. He is our meal. He is our wealth. He is our refuge. He's our shelter. He's our protector. He is our resurrection. He is our life. He is our truth. He is our light. Father, I pray all of these things would come home to our hearts. I am jealous for these things from my heart, that they would come home, even by one degree. And I pray that for these who are listening today. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.